Okay, guys, let's let's do real quick a little thought experiment, shall we? Okay. How many Einsteins does it take to change a light bulb? Huh. Mm. Well, okay. I guess that depends on the speed of the changer, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the mass of the bulb. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Or vice versa, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, okay, it might just be easier if you just like leave the bulb and then change the room, right? Sure. Well, yeah. you know, it's all relative. It's all relative. Quite. Welcome to Nerd Zone History. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I'm Sarah Ashley. How's everybody? We are great. I'm relatively fine. Oh my. <laughs> it's all relative. Gosh, here we go. <laughs> well, I had the bad pun last time. You have the bad pun this time. I think it's fair, don't you think? All the puns. Let all the puns be. So, if you guys couldn't have guessed it, what are we talking about today, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we are talking about the greatest mustache in all of science. Uh, And hairdo to boot. Well, I mean, let's not get crazy because we did kind of say that Newton had the best hairdo. For his time. For his time, that's true. For his time. I'm talking about, you know, 20th century. Okay. Nobody rivals Einstein. Uh, Excuse me? Nobody rivals Einstein? Nobody. Newton? You're not going to... Come on, nothing's bigger than Newton, man. No, he's talking. He's talking about like, well, the hairdo in particular. But nothing's Wayne Newton. Come on, nothing's bigger than Wayne Newton. Come on. That is true about Wayne Newton. That is a larger than life Vegas show, and everybody should go see it. However, we're talking about science. <laughs> yeah, and if oh. you give uh, you know Einstein some rhinestones, I'm just <laughs> saying that Frank Einstein had a very very. <laughs> very very well conceived Vegas show, and it did not do as well as Wayne Newton's. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, folks. And his cover of Donkashain was just no, just could very, not. Very very subpar. Could very not subpar. Donkashain. <laughs> <laughs> subpar to say the least. <laughs> um, no, uh, uh, Albert Einstein <laughs> um, did have some sweet hair. Uh, definitely that. Uh, and this is not the two brothers who made the bagels, right? No, no, this no. Not... No, this is the guy who had the uh, stuck in a finger stuck in a socket look. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, you know. Well, let's let's just state it, okay? Uh, we we obviously covered Sir Isaac Newton in the last episode. Yes. And he left us with a bit of a cliffhanger. Right? Yeah. And that is his work with universal gravitation had one big noticeable gap. And that is, of course, the fact that nobody knew what the hell gravity was Mm -hmm. and could not explain why it affected, only that it did affect. Yeah. Then enter the brilliant mind of Albert Einstein. So whereas Newton was the grandfather of mathematics modern mathematics and and physics it is uh it is albert einstein who is now the the torchbearer who has taken the mantle and is propelling us into the future and not just the present but the future of modern of physics and and and, and mathematics yeah and if you can prove a grandmaster of intellectual badassery wrong you earn that title on on your own that's checkpoint yeah. number Two. <laughs> yes. You have to you have to dethrone the previous <laughs> grandmaster. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
Well, you know, yeah. in all fairness to to Newton, he just didn't exactly have the perspective that Albert sure. Einstein did. Sure. So perhaps given enough time and other work to be done, a I'm few sure hundred Newton, years. Yeah, a few hundred years. <laughs> I'm sure Newton could have come to the same conclusion, or born perhaps in a different time. Yeah, he could have come to the same conclusion. Sure. Um, not only that, but uh, Einstein works so differently in his way of thinking, so uniquely. And if you imagine an out of the box thinker, right? An out of the box thinker. We'll take a, we'll view that box and think of something that that is not within its its realm of existence, just outside of that, right? That's that's Newton. Einstein takes that box, views it in a completely different dimension in which the box is spherical, and then looks outside of that. <laughs> yes. Um, and for any other scientist at the time to con- to get to point A or B, you you did. Something very simple, right? So you would draw a line. You draw a line from point A to B. That's what most scientists were doing. Really exceptional scientists at the time would get to point A to B by putting down an object that joins the two together. A little more creative. Um, Einstein says, screw the line. Who needs any of that? When I can simply imagine the way it works, and oh, by the way, point B is actually an infinitesimal period of points that span out into the universe, and I'm doing my best to connect them all. I mean, that's, again, just to highlight how differently this man's mind worked. So where did it all begin? It begins in Munich. Yes. uh, March 14th, um, 1879, in Germany. Um, How interesting... Both the death of Isaac Newton and the birth of Albert Einstein just happened to be in March when we're recording this podcast. How interesting. Interesting. Could it have possibly been planned or actually rather coincidental? But nonetheless. Never mind that these are being released in April. Even better. But when Ah, they're being recorded. But Einstein dies in April. So there we go. (laughs) And remember, Brian, in this case, it really is all relative. Uh Ah. Oh, that's not just a pun that's science that, that's a pun double whammy ladies and gentlemen <laughs> a brickmont first on this podcast yeah. so um albert einstein was born to secular middle-class jews um his father herman einstein was originally a featherbed salesman actually um but then he later ran an electrochemical f- uh, factory with some success actually um he and his uh his uh, brother Jacob actually yes. founded a company that manufactured electrical equipment that was based on direct current. And this is really significant because what they were attempting to do was bring light to the city of Munich. Mm-hmm. And Einstein, from a very, very early age, was exposed to electricity and to light and to the things that absolutely fascinated him and, and stimulated his imagination. An imagination that I will tell you is made even more significant by the fact that he was actually a very late talker. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this can happen in developmental stages of the brain where language just simply comes later. Not that it is, uh, you know, damaged during that delayed process, but it is simply something that does happen. I mean, he kind of makes up for it for the fact that he was playing violin by five. Right. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> this man lives inside his, of his mind, even yeah. at a very early age. He lives in his own thoughts. And somebody who communicates with his own thoughts first before speaking it out, a lot of us do the opposite. (laughs) We talk first before we think about it. He was the exact opposite. And it's no surprise that he had uh, the type of analytical and imagination 
that he he possessed. And, you know, some of the things that really kind of affected him, as, as far as Einstein even wrote this, that he said the two wonders that deeply affected his early years, the first one was an encounter with a compass at the mm. age of five. Um, and he was completely taken with the idea that invisible forces could move this needle. Um, and, you know, obviously led to, <laughs> led to a lifelong fascination that would drive his work. Um, and then the second wonder was at age 12 when he discovered a book of geometry, um, which he ended up calling it his sacred little geometry book because mm -hmm. he just could not put it down. Um, what if he was given a coloring book instead? What if, <laughs> his, what if he was merely given a pair of dice instead of a, a, a compass? compass? I don't know. Who knows? He would have been a billionaire made at the crap table. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would have taken the coloring book, ignored all the lines, and then done his own geometric drawings and taught himself basic geometry. Right, he, would have, he would have made new dice. <laughs> <laughs> Alchemy. It's a big Newton all of a sudden. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's it's interesting. Even though the Einsteins, you know, were they're Jews, they they were not observant. And Albert actually went to a Catholic elementary school um, from age five uh, for about three years. Um, and then at age eight, he was transferred to uh, the Lutpold Gymnasium, which is actually now the Albert Einstein Gymnasium, mm -hmm. um, where he got his advanced primary and secondary school education um, until he left Germany seven years later. Um, and what kind of prompted that was um, in 1894, um, Herman and Jacob's company um, lost the bid to supply the city of Munich with electrical lighting because um, they really weren't st standardizing to alternating current, which was really what was more efficient and yeah. what everybody was going with. Um, so they sold the factory and um, Einstein's family basically moved to Italy um, from Milan to uh, Pavia. And then when he went to Pavia, um, Einstein actually stayed behind in Munich for a while to finish his studies. And then... Um, because his father really intended him to pursue electrical engineering. Um, and he, Einstein was just alone and miserable and he was 15 and Germany had a draft at age 16. So he said, well, screw that. I'm a pacifist and yeah. left Germany and basically showed up on his parents' doorstep and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to stay with you guys now. And which was, didn't look great. Um, cause he wasn't really, he didn't do that well in school. Um, he was a terrible because student. he was he felt so constrained yeah. by strict guidance and then he was basically a a dropout with bad grades who was also a draft dodger yeah so... <laughs> my hero uh, Al albert einstein okay this is gonna sound really really stuck up of me but mm -hmm. i so i i identify with einstein at least in this sense uh in that in school, my grades were atrocious. C's and D's up the wazoo. Only ever got one F, and the only reason I didn't get more F's is because I was so goddamn charming to the teachers. Like, I was teacher's pet, so they gave me a pass. And it was for the very simple fact that if it was a subject that I was not interested in learning, I didn't really pay much attention to it. And I would do the classwork, but I refused to do homework because I felt that was me time. And me time was spent reading over and pouring over ancient Egyptian uh, you know, sure. history books that were way above my head. So I can identify with Einstein in that sense. Not that I'm on the level of genius of Einstein, which is no way near. Um, but I get it. Like, I understand yeah. why he did so poorly in school. He just, yeah. he was obsessed with the things that made him happy, that fascinated him. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's also just to go to show you that compulsory schooling at that point which was had only really been perfected 
not too long before this in Prussia, we talked about this in our history of education too, yeah. is really not the sign of of measuring intelligence. Right. It's it's really not. It's yeah. a, it's making sure that you meet certain standards, yeah. which has its own value. But clearly, Einstein is was was brilliant, and he had other reasons why he wasn't paying attention doing his schoolwork. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, just it gained him a reputation, mm-hmm. and one that he would just continue to reinforce by this behavior. Uh, throughout all of his schooling. Yeah. And another interesting aspect of his schooling, because he was going to, um, or he went to a Catholic school for so long, he actually did have a a pretty deep understanding, I guess, of spirituality. And, um, you know, around the age of 12, he was actually really deeply religious. And he was actually even composing songs about God and, um, you know, kind of really feeling that level of spirituality. But then when he was reading all these science books, it really contradicted his religious beliefs. And it really kind of got him to a point of actually just challenging authority and, um, you know, again, thinking outside the box that he's been given, you know? Yeah. Um, So it's very, very interesting. And um, another thing that really helped helped influence him was um, a young medical student named Max Talmud who um, he would also often have dinner at the Einstein home. And um, he became kind of an informal tutor and he was teaching um, Einstein higher mathematics and philosophy. And um, a really a strong turning point occurred when Einstein was 16, um, that Talmud had introduced him to a children's science series um, called Popular Books on Physical Science, um, in which the author imagined writing alongside electricity that was traveling inside a telegraph wire. Mm. And so Einstein asked himself the question that would dominate the next 10 years, what would a light beam look like if you could run alongside it? And if light were a wave, then light beam should be a pure stationary, like a frozen wave. Um, so even as a child, though, he knew that stationary light waves had never been seen. So there was a paradox there. So um, he basically, at age 16, with all of these thoughts in his head, wrote a short essay with the title on the investigation of the state of the ether in a magnetic field. When I was Poor 16, <laughs> when I was 16, I'm pretty sure I was watching Ace Ventura 2 for like the 20th time. Yeah. <laughs> Not too far off from what I was doing. Um, yeah. Like, remember we asked that question last episode, like, what did you do in the last 18 months? Yeah. What did you do when you were 16? Not that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, read a lot of books on Egypt and uh, made out with Martha. Oh. Yeah. Because I was go. 16. There yeah. you go. That's what you do. The The cool part, though, is that um, even though Einstein was, had dropped out, he actually did directly apply to the um, Swiss Federal Polytechnic School. Yeah. And... Um, good old Bern, Switzerland. Yes. And basically, um, he didn't really have the equivalent of a high school diploma. So they basically said, if you're able to... And he actually, he like blew the entrance exams out of the water. Um but he failed at French, he failed at chemistry, he failed at biology. Um, and but he could so, speak Italian. <laughs> right? Um, but he was allowed into the school on the condition of him finishing his formal schooling. So he went to a special high school um, run by Just Winteler um, in Switzerland, and he graduated in 1896. And the interesting part is actually this this relationship with the guy who ran the high school actually became really important. He became lifelong friends with them. Um, Winsler's daughter, Marie, was actually Einstein's first love. Mm. Um, Einstein's sister would actually eventually marry Winsler's son. Mm. Um, and then a close friend of the Einsteins would actually marry um, the Winsler's eldest daughter, Anna. So it kind of 
everybody kind of meshed together there, which is, I thought was really sweet. Um, and Einstein would recall his years um, at the Polytechnic School in Zurich, some of the happiest years of his life. Um, he That's where he made pretty much most of his friends. Um, and he really started to, um, you know, develop these have these lengthy conversations with his friends and and really develop his ideas on space and time um so it was really a, a thriving point for him and he also met his future wife there his future mm-hmm. first wife <laughs> yeah that didn't end terribly well no uh, well we'll talk about that mm-hmm. um his schooling again just continued to be a problem for him and he did so well to get to his higher education and then once he gets there, he reverts pretty much right back to his old ways. And he would much rather spend time in a cafe sitting around talking about the things that interest him than actually attending class on time, sure. attending class at all, or doing any of the assignments that were asked of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gained this, again, reputation as a goofball. He also gained some recognition with the ladies. Uh, he had this incredible, brilliant mind and this amazing way of talking to people. And even though he may not be described as the, you know, greatest looker in the world, uh, <laughs> neither neither was Voltaire, right? So, sure. you know, it, it was his charm that made him so attractive. Mm-hmm. And one of his fellow students, in fact, the only female student of physics at the entire college, uh, Mileva, was absolutely fascinated by him. Oh, and, yeah. and he by her. And they began this this very intense love affair that would eventually become their marriage and the birth of two children, two sons. Uh, and she was an interesting person. She was a very... Whereas Einstein was much more happy-go-lucky, she was a lot more serious. Mm-hmm. She was a little bit more stern. She became even more so as, uh, as the years went by. Uh, she sadly did not pass her exams. No. Uh, she did not achieve her degree, whereas Einstein did. And there's thoughts to be quite a bit of resentment there, especially considering she used to have to constantly encourage Einstein to go to class. Mm-hmm. And he, in turn, would kind of deter her from her own studies. I can only, by putting myself in her you know, place, imagine that there would be a lot of... And, and later anger and resentment around and that. imagining that she was the only she wasn't the only woman in the university but she was the only woman um in the mathematics and physics section of yes. the teaching diploma of course exactly. so so that was you have to also understand the element of the fact that here's this guy who's able to kind of coast through and here she is a woman having to fight really really hard and yeah. she didn't quite make it yeah um so that is definitely a bummer <laughs> um and there was actually there were some claims that um that Maleva actually helped Einstein with his now extremely famous 1905 papers, um, but that was actually that's been pretty de- de- uh, disproven that she'd ever made any kind of substantive contributions. For well, that, so. she checked his math. She checked the math, but she didn't like help him develop no. it. So and I want to offer a quick correction: uh, the move to Bern, Switzerland, does not happen till later. The Polytech is actually not located in Bern, yeah, it's in Zurich. So I just want to make a quick correction to that yeah. before anyone sends out a email. Uh, to minute, Sarah's minute, point, minute, that is well, Zurich in, is, is in Switzerland, is it not? It is, but the city of Bern, which she would Bern, eventually yeah. end up, uh, is not the location of the school. So you weren't that off, I'm just saying. I know, yeah. I just want to make sure I, I offer my quick correction myself. I misread the wrong line on my notes. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, it's interesting, though. So, you know, even after he graduated in 1900, 
um, Einstein was really kind of dealing with a little bit of a uh, professional crisis um, because <laughs> he often cut classes and, and had a lot of animosity with his professors. Um, he had asked one of his professors, uh, Heinrich Weber, to write him a letter of recommendation. And um, Einstein was actually turned down for every single academic position that he applied to based on that unfortunate letter of not really recommendation um, because Weber really was just annoyed at Einstein, annoyed that he asked him. Um, and so Einstein actually later wrote, I would have found a job a long, long ago if Weber had not played a dishonest game with me. Mm. So very, very disappointing. But um, during this time, as his relationship was, was uh, deepening with Maleva, um, his parents were really not for it. And um, it seems that around 1902, Einstein and Leib actually had a child, a daughter, um, and we don't really know where she wound up. We don't know her real name. Her fate is completely unknown. However, there's an idea that she may have either been adopted or died of scarlet fever mm -hmm. in infancy. So that's also kind of really interesting. They would they would later marry and have two Two, two sons. sons yeah um but that first that first daughter mm. yeah they they found um uh evidence of that in their letters to each other so um so this was a really low point for einstein um and he didn't he couldn't really support his family without a job his father's business was bankrupt um and his father's health was deteriorating yeah. really quickly as well yeah so he was unemployed and he basically started taking lowly jobs tutoring um but he was even fired from those jobs um but the turning point came later when um uh, a f uh the father of a friend of his um recommended him for a position as a clerk in the swiss patent office in Bern. the yes. infamous patent office yes yeah uh and a uh, third class clerk at that <laughs> exactly um and then this is this allowed Einstein to get the blessing from his father to marry Maleva, and then his father had passed away. But it always really stuck with Einstein that his father had passed away, um, thinking that he was a failure. Yeah. Well, in all intensive purposes, he was a failure. Yes. At this point in his life, he mm -hmm. didn't really have a whole lot to show for the work that he had done. Yeah. Um, and that does have very deep effect on you. Mm -hmm. especially when you you take a job that's more or less handed to you and you still manage to make very little money yeah and burn him and maleva lived in a very small apartment mm -hmm. would eventually end up raising two children in that small apartment yeah for hans many years. and edward um and you know he was not thrilled to be doing the work that he was sitting in that patent office on the third floor right next to the window was the worst possible place you could have put an einstein uh, he would get through his work very, very quickly. Because he was brilliant. Yes. And, the well, the tasks that were being asked of him were also painfully simple for a man of his of his intellectual capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so he would be able to either multitask and do both of these things at the same time, or often than not finish his work quickly and then be lost in thought staring at the window. Yeah. And so, but, but this really was an opportunity for him to start daydreaming about what he had studied and all of these things that really interest him and kind of start to develop the foundation of his ideas. Yes. Um, you know, he had studied Maxwell's equations, which described, which described the nature of life um, or nature of light. Um, and he had discovered a fact unknown to Maxwell himself, namely the speed of light remains the same, no matter how fast one moves. That's right. Um, which violates Newton's law of motion. Um, 
however, because there's no absolute velocity in Newton's theory. And so it kind of really allowed him to formulate the principle of relativity while he was bored at work, people. <laughs> so let's ask ourselves another question. Like, what did you do most recently when you were bored at work? Facebook. Just, yeah, it's always Facebook. Yeah. He's just like, I'm so bored. Nothing is moving. <laughs> Nothing is happening. Wait a second. What if everything is moving? Everything is moving, but it is moving so fast you cannot see it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not relativity, but <laughs> I get where you're going with that. But the point is, yeah. I mean, rel- relative to where he was, you couldn't yeah. see the, yeah. what was happening. That's that's yeah. the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, Giving me some crap. And so here he was. He's now a newlywed. Um, he already has one son. He's bored at work. And 1905, he ends up um, that he publishes what a lot of people call Einstein's. Um, well, it's the the. <laughs> it's the 1905 papers, which yes. are very, very important. It's they, miracle year. Yeah, they call it the miracle year for him. Um, and it basically altered the course of modern physics with these papers. Because, Eric, do you want to talk about what came out of those papers? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. So yeah. we'll, we're going to take this just one step at a time, uh-huh. shall we? Um, the first and what would eventually earn him the Nobel Prize uh, was his, his work with... Um, Browning in motion. So essentially the seemingly random movement of particles uh, that he found actually has a lot more behind it than just that. Uh, There's a lot of this stuff that I will be totally honest. I do not have a degree in physics. I do not understand. uh, So I'm not going to go into super detail about it. But essentially the work itself supports atomic theory. And his calculations were able to come up with the fact that matter is actually made up of tiny atoms and molecules and yeah. he was able to show that how in in the way that they move that those in, are in fact a reality they are they are real uh and now that you understand what atoms are and that they are a real thing now you can start looking and examining and, and working with them and you know taking the nucleus and adding protons and electrons and working with them and doing all sorts of incredible things mm-hmm. this would eventually lead him to the last paper that he would publish that year uh, which we'll get to in a moment, that would lead to the whole concept of nuclear fission mm-hmm. uh, and the development of things like, you know, nuclear energy and the atomic bomb. Yeah. Uh, you also have the work that he did on the particulate nature of light. So photons, the facts that, that lights are, that there are light particles and what have you. And, the, and further expanding the very nature of light that Newton started with, he goes into a lot more detail around uh, even going to discredit that light truly travels in waves, but rather it travels uh, in these kind of little uh, discrete packets mm-hmm. or quantas of energy. So lots of pretty, again, way over my he head. He basically kind of was the mediator in the infamous Newton hook controversy and said, no, no, look, you're both right. Yeah. <laughs> waves and tiny little particles. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, one of his best known concepts was the special theory of relativity. Um, and this shows, again, to Sarah's point we were just talking about, which is the speed of light uh, is a constant in the universe. It travels at the exact same speed, no matter what, and produced some of his most interesting ideas around the way that matter and light actually interact with one another. And, and it's really interesting, real quick, about special relativity is that there were other scientists who had pieces yes. of this theory, but Einstein was the first person to really assemble 
the whole theory together yes and to realize that it was a universal law of nature um not something kind of a oh not a not a weird thing not a weird occurrence like it's an actual law well what he adds to it that a lot of other people were missing was the element of time sure because einstein sees this fabric of space okay the 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 makeup of space and time is not two separate things but rather interwoven they are the same thing they are space time and they can be affected yeah and he would show how they would be affected later with his theory of general relativity in the way that mass distorts space-time and creates essentially gravity he would show that later uh, and we would have and we have confirmed it now just as of a few weeks ago which is yes. pretty incredible gravitational we'll, we'll, waves yeah we'll talk about that mm-hmm. um we can quote unquote hear them now we can we can hear yeah. we can hear the universe that's so, that's so crazy. Yeah, we can the, the vibration of those waves Folks, is audible. I just want to confirm that Eric has not smoked some really strong pot. Yeah. yeah. What he just said is scientific fact. Yes. Yeah. You can hear the universe. You can hear the universe, man. Uh and there's so much more to special this is special theory of relativity. Mm-hmm. Uh but he, uh, he This is the best part though. I'm sorry. Uh, go of, ahead. Yeah. Of 1905 was this other part, he put it in there as like an afterthought. Like it was like practically a footnote to this thing, kind of dropping in. Oh yeah, by the way, E equals MC squared. Right. So that, yeah, that's his final publication. It's only a couple pages long. It's really short. Uh, and like BT dubs. <laughs> but here's so I, I want to focus on because we're going to talk a lot about general re- relativity in a little bit. Okay. Uh, I really want to focus for a moment if we may, on E equals MC squared. Because not a lot of people understand really what understand what that means. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've all heard it before. If we explain out the equation, what is E equals MC squared? Eating is equal to milk and C squared, which of course is, is chocolate and cookies. Uh, right. Chocolate multiplied by cookies plus the milk equals eating, which really to me is the theory of happiness. Yes. Um, in fact, the cookie monster could not exist without this formula. No, in fact, this is the cookie monster equation. Yes. In fact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he came into existence <laughs> the moment Einstein wrote it on paper. Indeed. Yeah, well, you know, some people like yell Eureka. He yelled cookie. Yeah. Not to be confused with E equals MC cubed, which with was chip with cook- chocolate chip cookies. Yes, that came later. Of course. Yeah, that was developed yes. later on down the line. Yes, yes. indeed. And the, um, the chocolate milk, you know, attempts that have been made recently by people like Hawking is just... It's getting yeah. absurd. It's, I mean, and don't even get us started on strawberry milk. So yeah. let's just... It's, just yeah, right I now. mean, that's just a controversy in and yeah. of itself. No, whole yeah. other episode. Freaking um, Neil deGrasse Tyson again. <laughs> <laughs> Drops the mic. Um, but in all seriousness... Yeah. Um, no, energy is equal to mass times the constant of the speed of light. Yep. Squared. Squared. Is what it stands for. Um, because speed of light and mass are kind of the only two... Well. The only constant is the speed of light, basically. Yes. That's the one thing we can we can't really change. So, so let's let's just break it down really quick and talk about some of the other big players that made this possible. Because as we stated earlier in the episode, uh, if it wasn't for the work of many others, Einstein would not have been able to to come to the conclusions that he did. And when we talk about energy, the biggest player in the world of or the concept of energy, of course, is Michael Faraday. And that is a very well-known name in uh, in the scientific world, uh, and it's also well-known if you watch Lost. It's also so, really well-known if you're a doomsday prepper and yeah. you have your own Faraday cage. That's right. Um, Faraday, who 
is very interesting, very, uh, very poor at birth, son of a blacksmith, uh, has no formal education, has to teach himself uh, to do everything, essentially, is able to take a, um, a partnership and, a, and, a, um, and an apprenticeship with a very prominent uh, scientist of the time and ends up developing his own ideas and theories, particularly around electricity and also magnetism. Uh, and at this time in history, which is the early 1800s, there wasn't a whole lot known around the concept of energy. It was seen as being one of those uh, kind of fairy tale science fiction sort of things. That there was this invisible force mm -hmm. that could not be seen but could have an effect, right? This was in the realm of alchemy and things like that. That's where yeah. this was kind of put, right? And Faraday is introduced to an experiment uh, that I believe started first in Denmark or something to that effect. Anyway, by the time it comes to him, they have um, electrified a current, and they are now bringing a mag. Or they're bringing a compass around this, and they're noticing that the point of the compass is being affected by the electric current that's being generated. And no matter how they move it around, the compass continues to be affected more or less the same way. And everyone else is absolutely perplexed. Nobody understands what's going on here. And Faraday, you know, brings up the idea, well, what if the electricity that's passing through is actually generating an invisible field, somehow magnetic, that is causing an effect to the compass? Because magnets were known to have caused that effect. Uh, and people thought he was absolutely crazy. And he imagined it kind of like a bunt cake, if you will, right? With these lines emanating from the center and then coming back in and around and cycling around and emanating outward in this kind of web uh, eventually, he gains enough prominence in the scientific field to, to earn his own professorship, and in doing so, uh, brings this to more than just a theory and, and starts to show how it's real, how the energy is an actual thing. It is a non-observable force, and it is um, something that is unifying, that is all around us in, in different ways, and that electricity and energy are in fact the same thing and it would be later proven after he was quite advanced in age by the work of other people around him that um <clears throat> that electromagnetism was a thing that energy affects magnetism as magnetism affects electricity so these two things are, are one and the same hmm. that's your first piece of it and then you have uh mass and mass has been known about for a very long time, um, but it was the work of Monsieur and Mademoiselle Lavoisier in uh, France in the, seven, in the late 1700s uh, that showed that mass never truly is lost, right? So let's think about that for a moment. What, what, what do I mean by this? Well, it's basically the difference between mass versus weight, right? Correct. So let, well, let's say you have um, a car that's taken to a junkyard. That car left out in the elements long enough, what will happen to it? Rust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It yeah. begins to deteriorate. The metal begins to become fatigued. It seems to become more brittle and maybe even start to disappear, right? You're now seeing holes in the car and what have you. Well, that mass didn't just disappear. It simply transformed. And in the case of the car, it became rust. Mm -hmm. And he shows through his experiments that mass is never truly lost. It simply undergoes a transformation. Uh, and when you look at things like, you know, a whole city, for example, so Paris, which went up in flames uh, during the revolution at this time, 
that city, if you had burned the entire city to the ground, the ash and dust of the, the bricks and mortar would still be there. Yeah. It's just your mass is now transformed. Right. And this was a huge deviation in thinking. Uh, it's very sad that he had his head cut off uh, during the revolution. <laughs> he was also the one who was in charge of taxing the Parisian population. Sure. Mm. Uh, and it was his idea to build a wall around Paris and tax the anybody who walked through it through the, through the nose. Not uh, a popular figure. No, not <laughs> super popular, but super important in this equation. And then we have uh, C, which actually stands for light um i'm probably saying this wrong i think it's selectrius which is latin for swiftness okay that's what c stands for and you you find that it is pretty incredible stuff i mean light is traveling incredibly fast we're looking at 671 million miles per hour yes or what is more commonly known as 184,000 miles per second true but Miles per hour, I think sometimes you're driving your car, you have a little bit of a better understanding of that, right? Yeah. And you think your average car on the freeway is going 65, 70 miles per hour. Well, light's traveling a hell of a lot faster than that. Yes. And you find that just as electricity and magnetism are kind of one and the same, um, light is also affected by all of these forces, in particular mass, which is something that was not well accepted or understood until, until this time. When you break down the squared pieces, right, you're looking at the fact that there were a lot of people who were huge advocates of things like kinetic energy, uh, of the fact that you have movement and you have uh, these underlying forces that are at play that affect movement as well. Newton was very clear with his laws of motion that it was a very obvious, very painfully simple, if you will, if, even if the math wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, understanding of how it all works. Sure. And then with the concepts and ideas of kinetic energy, that completely threw that all off. Uh, and there were, you know, tests that were performed in and around this time. If you imagine a ball of lead being dropped into a block of clay, right? You do so, and then you measure the depression that's being made. Now, if you take another ball, the same ball, okay, but you simply move it twice the height, how much of that depression do you think would be left behind if you dropped the ball? So you're increasing it by twice its height, and you're dropping the ball again. Logic would dictate that you would get a depression that's twice as deep as the one that you just had before. Sure. In reality, it's four times as deep. Hmm. So Newton was wrong, <laughs> and people were having a hard time accepting yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because nobody understood how that all worked together. Uh, thankfully, when you add that into light, then it all just becomes much easier to, to see and understand. Right. So when you take E equals MC squared, what you're really saying is that energy and mass mm -hmm. can actually exchange with one another. Uh, that just as mass undergoes a transformation, energy transforms into mass and mass transforms into energy. These were two completely different concepts and ideas that were thought of for a long time and were now, through Einstein's eyes, being seen as the same thing. Yeah. They're just very disproportional. Sure. So for example, I have in front of me an Apple Pencil. I use it with my lovely iPad, which I love so much. The mass... I swear to God, we got to start getting advertising revenue from. Yeah, Apple. I know. Seriously. Uh, the mass that makes up this pencil, if I were to somehow find a way to harness all of the energy that is stored in this mass, the explosion would be probably equivalent to about, oh, I don't know, 10,000 atomic bombs, maybe more. 
What? Yeah. If you don't have an Apple Pencil, take any pencil. Uh, that'll do. <laughs> Just... Because the, the the force of a one atomic bomb is one atom being split. Is that correct? No. Or no? No, it's more than yeah. that. But it's but nonetheless, in principle, we're talking it's a, about... It's a relatively small mass. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about the fact that mass contains so much energy. Sure. The, sure. the blocks that make up the entire universe. And through this very simple equation, Einstein is able to prove that if those two things were to, uh-huh. huh, yeah, uh, if you could harness that power, you could cause an incredible release of energy. Sure. So mass can be, in fact, converted to energy. Yeah, which would then have dangerous consequences later on down the line. Uh, very dangerous consequences. Yeah. But it's important to understand that because a lot of people don't really, you know, understand yeah. what this means. And I'm sure there's someone out there, huh, I'm positive there's someone out there who can do it much better justice than I just did. Yeah. But I wanted to mention at least some of the other figures who are important in all of this. Sure, sure. So you might expect that after the release of all of these super important papers mm-hmm. uh, that he would be, you know, catapulted into, into stardom. Uh, and that's not the case at all. In fact, he went about four years in this s- slump where his, his work was not at all being recognized. Uh, and it was very, very upsetting for him. Uh, it's a time when he almost gives up all hope of ever getting out of that patent's office. And that is until he receives message uh, that uh, Max Planck wants to speak with him, who was a major, major player in the world yeah. of physics. He was the founder of quantum theory. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't until 1909 that he actually, that his papers get across sure. his desk and he, he instantly realizes, my God, there's something that's just not being taken advantage of here. Uh, I need to meet this guy. I need to figure out what's going on with him. Yeah. Um, and this is what really helped kind of set Einstein into intellectual stardom, really. Um, he was starting to go around and speak at international conferences and get a lot of um, prestige and being offered a lot of um, positions at different institutions. And um, really, his his ship had taken off at this point. And unfortunately, it was um, having taking a toll on his marriage and his yeah. family life um well after especially after being appointed professor of physics at zurich yes uh there was a big turn right in around there Mm -hmm. as he also starts to take up a relationship with someone not of (laughs) someone not his wife not his wife and in fact somebody his family (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so um he was actually um he was cheating on his wife with his uh, first cousin by ma- uh, first cousin on his mom's side and second cousin on his father's side. So kind of already there's some mixing going double on. <laughs> double yeah. duty there. And the funny thing is, is he was also during this time um, during his separation with his wife with Maleva. Um, and while he was fooling around with Elsa, he was also writing letters to his first love, talking about how not a day goes by that he doesn't remember her and miss her and all that other yes, stuff. Yes, he was so, quite the philanderer, as we'll find out later on. Yeah. Um, well, no, as we're finding out now. As we're finding out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, later on in this episode. Sure. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing I would keep in mind is that this sounds very controversial. Um, and, I mean, the scandal of him being having extramarital relationships is, is yeah, sure. scandalous. Um, but the perception of oh, he's his cousin, Jesus. The idea of of dating or marrying your cousin is a taboo, kind of by by contemporary standards. Yeah, it wasn't as bad back then. It wasn't as bad back then, and genetically speaking, it's not. I'm not defending this, but I'm genetically speaking, it doesn't pose the risk of first cousin. Yes, is still a little risky. Yeah, second cousin is the one second that's the safest. Is the safest. Bad, but yeah, yes. but 
Don't well, forget. Einstein's not interested in having kids at this yeah, point again. Already, yeah, Elsa already has children from a previous marriage. Yeah. So yeah. there's yes. that. Um, but yeah, so they so he ended up uh, divorcing Maleva in 1919. Um, but upon the divorce, he actually agreed to give her the money he might receive if he ever won a Nobel Prize. Well, that was the conditions for yeah. the divorce. Yeah. In fact, he did some really shady stuff with Maleva, and towards the end of the relationship. He had drawn up a contract mm-hmm. uh, stating that she would bring him meals in his room, that she would not you know, communicate with him unless he had initiated conversation. Yeah. She would not partake in intimacy with him. And she outright refused to sign it. Yeah. She said pretty much go to hell. Not going to do that. Um, uh, good for good her. for her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a pretty a big about face to make on a relationship oh, no. that's lasted I mean, so he, long. He was kind of he was kind of a jerk, <laughs> and he was ready to be gone because by 1914, uh, Max Planck had proposed that he come to Berlin. Right. Yeah, uh, and he take a very prestigious professorship there and yeah. become a member of of the scientific community. And in he Berlin. went. Oh yeah, he went. And he was separated from Maleva for five years before the divorce was final. But the story of how he went shows. Again, the showmanship of, of Einstein. Uh, Max Planck approaches him, and Einstein hymns and haws. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to go. Perhaps I'll just stay here on burn. It's very nice. I like the clock tower. Yeah, it's good. Um, <laughs> come to the train station tomorrow, and if I am there holding in my hands flowers that are white, it means well, I will not go with you. I will stay here in Switzerland. And if I am holding flowers that are red, it means I am ready to travel with you to Berlin. And he and makes this he big... P- I mean, they got pink flowers. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> makes this big ordeal about it. And sure enough, he shows up the next day uh, with red flowers, yeah. indicating that he will go to Germany. And that's just how Einstein was. I'm sure he had already made up his mind. He was just sure. adding a little bit to the spectacle of it all. Yeah. But 1914... Through 1918 were very difficult years for Albert Einstein, as they were for much of the world, as this was, of course, the First World War. Yeah. And Einstein was very much a pacifist, even though we'll talk a little bit about how that manifests later in his life. Some would dispute that. Uh, And he outright denounced the war. He was not interested in it at all. Many of his colleagues at uh, the university in Berlin were enthusiastic and energetic about the war oh he ca- he straight up called uh nationalism which is really what this war was about he called it the measles of mankind yeah um that's how much he was he was completely against it he wrote um at such a time as this one realizes what a sorry species of animal one belongs to and not yeah. only that but he was so disgusted by the actions of some of his fellow colleagues particularly those who were advancing chemical warfare by creating uh, chlorine gas and other mm-hmm. terrible uh, tools of, of war that uh, he decided that he was going to very publicly speak out against it. Um, before this, a manifesto known as the Manifesto of 93 was created and signed by 93 leading German scholars, stating that not only was the war justified, but it should encourage the participation of the entire scientific community towards its eventual outcome. And Einstein proposed a counter-manifesto, which would also be signed by fellow intellectuals in Germany. And he had four people sign it. Wow. But So he gave up and never published it. Okay. To do so would have been academic suicide. It would have been completely embarrassing. Well, he was already incredibly unpopular. Yeah. And by 1915, he's incredibly alone. And just like the parallel with his predecessor, uh, Newton... 
he too uses this time of reclusiveness to reapproach his studies mm-hmm. and buckles down and starts to now want to tackle general relativity, not just special relativity, right? Uh, with his work on on the nature of light, uh, but now he wants to explain how gravity actually comes into existence, how gravity works, something that Newton was never able to do. This is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, well, and it's it's also actually really interesting that um, kind of during during all this stuff with the war and everything that was going on, and, and just to jump ahead just on that subject in particular, um, in 1918, a bunch of radical students actually seized control of the University of Berlin where he was working. Yeah. Um, and they held the rector of the college and several professors hostage um, during this this big radical demonstration. And um, they didn't want people didn't want to call in the cops because they were afraid that it would probably result in some tragedy. Um, but Einstein, because he was both respected by students and faculty, um, was sent in to mediate the whole crisis. And he brokered a compromise that actually resolved the whole thing and let people... <laughs> let people keep their lives um which is kind of amazing and just kind of goes to show the respect that people had for einstein as a professor um and as a as a thinker yeah so 1916 right one year later uh we would find general relativity published finally Mm -hmm. after plaguing with or i should say being plagued with terrible uh mistakes in his math that needed to be corrected and needed to be fixed and some gaping holes. He was expected to start producing something around this, right? He had already set the expectation with special relativity. Now general relativity needed to happen. And uh, he he was in a bit of a bind until he eventually realized the missing piece of it all. And that is the eccentric orbit of Mercury around the sun. Mm-hmm. Mercury's orbit is all over the place. And he doesn't really have a way of explaining it um but he believes that the the clues may lie in the very fabric of space-time itself and that these objects with their tremendous mass must somehow curve space they must make their indent and that gravity is simply the effect of that curvature of space. And I'll propose a very simple thought experiment to you folks. Okay. Imagine the sun is a bowling ball. Mm -hmm. Okay. And space-time, the fabric of our space, is a trampoline, the surface of a a large trampoline. What happens when you put the bowling ball in the middle? It's going to bounce and send ripples on the trampoline. It will. Yeah. But once it settles, what does the trampoline surface look like? Oh, like it dips down in the middle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's now concave, right? So it now has shape to it. Mm-hmm. The sun is that bowling ball, and it's so massive that it actually distorts the shape. Now, as you get closer to it, that dip gets even more intense, and as you move further away, its effect is less so. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine you take a marble, and you roll that marble on the trampoline. What happens to it? Like around the the mm-hmm. bowling ball, yeah. Uh, I imagine probably go around and around and around, then slowly get closer and closer and closer to the bowling ball in the center. Precisely, that is gravity. All orbits have the potential to decay. 
That's why when we send satellites up, they only stay up for so long. Eventually, they make it back down to Earth, right? Mm -hmm. That's as if that marble had continued and then slammed into the sun. Now, if that marble, however, is traveling at a fast enough speed, it will actually remain in orbit around our bowling ball on that trampoline. This is the delicate nature of planetary motion. This is ruled by gravity, right? And we can measure that gravity thanks to Newton, but now we know what's causing it thanks to Einstein. And this idea sets the world ablaze. It is absolutely mind-boggling crazy. I mean, who would ever think of anything like this? And what makes it so much more difficult for anyone to accept is the fact that you cannot see it, mm -hmm. right? You can only measure the effects of gravity. So how do we know that this is a real thing? So Einstein proposes an idea to the scientific community, particularly to astronomers worldwide. And he says... If I'm right, the mass of the sun is so tremendous that, it, that its effect on gravity will be visibly apparent by viewing starlight passing near the edge of the sun. The problem with that is the sun is incredibly bright. How do you view that starlight? A spectrometer. Mm, yes, but it won't show you the distortion that we're looking for. This is an optical illusion that is created by gravity. I don't know. How do we block out most of the sun's light? Oh, eclipses. Well, eclipses. Yeah. Exactly. And it just so happens there's a big eclipse coming up in 1916. So if he's right, astronomers should be able to photograph this eclipse and should be able to see the stars around the edge of the sun appear to bow as they are distorted by gravity. And this is one of my favorite stories of all time. I'm going to make it short because I know we're, we're running out of time here. This is Well, this is already going to be a long episode. Yeah. Just deal with it. <laughs> um, Lick Observatory. We, I think we all know at this point I'm, I'm a big fan, right? Yes. So let me offer a real quick clarification with this. I was jumping ahead of my notes again. Uh, this did not start in 1916. Excuse me. This process started in 1912. 1916 is where he would eventually publish his results, right? Uh, of all of these findings and what have you. Forgive me. So let me just backtrack a little bit. That so, being yeah. said, we all know you're a big fan of yeah. Lick Observatory. Yeah. So Lick Observatory uh, at this point uh, in 1912 was a big player in world in the world of astronomy. So when Einstein sends out his call to action to try to capture this, so he can eventually publish this in 1916, uh, he gains the interest of several folks. Uh, first in Germany... Uh, by the a professor by the name of Freulich, uh, who was very interested in helping, but the university was not interested in funding this expedition. Uh, remember, things in Europe were a little dicey right now. Uh, this is just on the eve of war, so this is not a good time to be playing around with, you know, affairs that will take them to other parts of the world, in particular, Russia. Right. That's where, in 1914, we're going to have that solar eclipse. So, instead... Uh, Froelich reaches out to uh, William Wallace Campbell, who is a uh, who is at that time is the director of Lick Observatory, and who was a pioneer in the field of astrophotography. And he's fascinated by this challenge so much so that he designs this absolutely incredible apparatus uh, known as the Einstein camera, and he prepares to go on expedition, taking Froelich along with him. Uh, they actually eventually make it to uh, Germany in 1914, just in time to head off on their expedition by train with all their equipment with them and all the people they've got alongside. And Einstein's there to bid them 
a farewell and say, good luck. I hope you guys prove me right so I can get people off my back and prove that general relativity is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they split up. You have uh, Campbell, uh, who goes to the Crimea, and then you have, um, or excuse me, you have Freundlich, who goes to um, uh, Crimea, and then you have Campbell, who goes to Kiev. And they set up two different expeditions in hopes of beating out the weather, because weather predictions are not terribly good. So they think, okay, we got two different sites. Hopefully the weather will be good in one place. Sadly, um, war breaks out. <laughs> mm. Right as all this is going on. And uh, Freundlich, who is a German, who is in Russia, has now been arrested and his uh, equipment confiscated. And he has become a prisoner of war for several months, uh, where he endures some rather unpleasantness in Russia. Campbell, who's an American, is neutral. They're not in the war at this point. And uh, they actually allow him to continue with his experiment. So he's all set up. He's ready to go. He's ready to take photographs of the sun. And sure enough, guess what happens? It doesn't happen. Well, it happens. There was no way around that. There was going to be an eclipse. Uh, but the clouds come in. Of oh, no. The clouds ruin everything. And the whole expedition is called off, and Einstein is absolutely devastated. But they get a chance again. They do. After the war. Yes. Uh, finally, in 1919, they would have the opportunity to, to do it for real this time. Uh, and that brings us to Goldendale, Washington, where Campbell uh, you know, is able to go ahead and set up his equipment uh, and hopefully capture the eclipse without any problems. And after dealing with clouds all night the night before and all day long, he finally gets a break in the clouds and he gets some photos. Arthur Eddington, who is a, another a fellow astronomer, a contemporary of Campbell, who is also very much into photography uh, and a huge admirer of Einstein because Eddington himself was also a pacifist who opposed uh, Britain's involvement in the war. He also takes this on, but travels to Africa instead with his own equipment to photograph. Uh, and he does so also dealing with a lot of problems with his own equipment. Uh, and they both end up capturing this eclipse. The uh, glass plates go back to Lick Observatory from Campbell's expedition. And Eddington starts analyzing his right in the field the best that he can. Einstein, all the while, is just waiting for some sort of announcement to happen. But Campbell, Campbell is not seeing anything that proves Einstein right. He's not seeing what he expects to see. And he actually travels all the way to England to announce his results to the, uh, you know, the Royal Society right there. And as he's beginning to announce his results and saying, hey, we found nothing, we're very sorry, we wish we could, he gets a telegraph saying that Eddington has actually discovered the effect in his photos, and Campbell sends a quick telegraph back to the United States saying, don't publish our results, let's wait, let's find out if the, um, if the African expedition shows what it says it shows. And sure enough, it does. The, the one photo that came out of it does show what Einstein had predicted, seemingly validating his, his theory of general relativity that was finally published again in 1916, those few years before that, and now there seemed to be actual physical proof of it. Mm -hmm. And Einstein became very popular as a result of this. Uh, it was 
widely accepted, but there were some pretty big players in the world of astrophysics who are not entirely convinced by the validity of these photos. Right. Photo, I should say. They wanted a better chance at it to prove once and for all definitively in the scientific mind that there was no question. Even though Einstein had already been well-renowned around the world sure. for this. Yeah. Um, in fact, by 1921, uh, he ends up, you know, in the United States to thousands upon thousands of people coming to see him. Uh, he's he's gained this new love for uh, for all this attention that has been awarded him. Yeah. Um, and he's doing world tours, not just the United States, but going to England, Japan, France. Um, and it is on his way back from Japan that he actually received word that he had received the Nobel Prize for Physics for the photoelectric effect. Yes. Now, it's very interesting when he receives this award, because he receives the award in 1921. Mm -hmm. However, he does not have his uh, opportunity for an acceptance speech until 1922. Yes. And one very important thing happens before he makes that speech. Mm -hmm. And that is the final, third now, Einstein photographic expedition that is sent out. Yes. And this is done by not just Campbell, who is now committed to the project. Sure. Uh, but by seven other astronomers from other countries around the world, including, including Freulich, who goes from Germany with his own expedition. They travel to Australia and set up, and the majority of them are, uh, again, due to either poor weather or malfunctions with their equipment, mm -hmm. unable to capture the photo. Ah. However, Campbell produces several absolutely fantastic photos. Mm -hmm. His lens that he designs, or not really designs, but just reappropriates from around the uh, observatory, but the way that he puts it all together, I mean, it's it's absolutely perfect. Sure. And they capture 93 stars Wow. in the field of view. More than any of the other plates if you combine them together. And again, they show in multiple stars the distortion. Mm -hmm. So it cannot be disputed at this point. Right. It's finally there. So what does Einstein do in his acceptance speech? Uh, he does not talk about the photoelectric effect that he actually won the Nobel Prize for yes. to the to the shock of everybody in the audience. He instead talks about relativity. Yeah. And, and now that he can shut out all the naysayers who were largely responsible for preventing him from getting the Nobel Prize and what he actually wanted it for. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he feels very confident and comfortable doing this. And nobody's going to play Einstein off the stage. Sure. No, he, absolutely. He, he was fine. Uh, and which is also interesting because it's also right around here that he actually launches the new science of cosmology. Yeah. Um, which that's I know. All. <laughs> uh, that's all. No biggie. Yeah. Ha let's add that to the list of intellectual uh, the, the badassery checklist? is yeah. creating a new study of science. That's Newtonian. That's like Newtonian level. I would yeah. say. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he his equations predicted that the universe is dynamic, both ex or, well dynamic expanding or contracting. So I mean, well, not only with general relativity under his belt now, yeah. but that leads to theories around the Big Bang, mm -hmm. around wormholes, yep, around perhaps most importantly, however, is black holes, yep. Uh, and this would lead way into future scientists like Stephen Hawking to be able to then now challenge Einstein. And start to challenge his ideas and take it the next evolutionary step forward. Um, but up until that point, this was the new doctrine. Um, he, <laughs> uh, 
the uh, the the portrait of Sir Isaac Newton um, in the in the the you know the grand hall there at the uh, at the Royal Society um, when an- the announcement is made that Einstein is correct. Uh, apologies are given to the portrait <laughs> the, the essentially that newton's yeah. theories are now being not totally disproved because a lot of newtonian physics is still there and present but a lot of clarification is now being made and ideas that newton never was able to achieve oh yeah. there was weeping in london <laughs> that day right well and actually um i mean astronomer edwin hubble um yeah who he... proved lamatra's theories of the big bang theory plausible yeah 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 he he basically uh brian's like yeah i know astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> he he found that the universe was indeed expanding which actually confirmed einstein's earlier work and and einstein went and had a visit with hubble um and actually interestingly enough declared the cosmological constant to be his greatest blunder yeah um einstein got it wrong yeah but he admitted it yeah for sure for sure um I mean, because Einstein's blunder apparently does determine the ultimate fate of the universe, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> just, just you know. We revised the theory yeah. of the ultimate fate of the universe. And, and We've fu- talked about that before. Right. And funny enough, in that same trip to California, um, Einstein was actually asked to appear alongside uh, Charlie Chaplin. And uh, they were mobbed by, you know, thousands of fans. And Chaplin remarked, uh, the people applaud me because everybody understands me. And they applaud you because no one understands you. (laughs) And Einstein asked Chaplin, what does it all mean? And Chaplin replied, nothing. (laughs) It means nothing. which is really interesting. So while, um, you know, Einstein is is here in the States and he's at, at the same time, you know, kind of living it up, going on his like fame tour kind of thing. He's having um, uh, exchanges with Sigmund Freud, letter exchanges. Um, he's um, talking with Indian mystics and he's kind of like kind of this larger than life personality. Um, In a way, it was kind of what's, what probably was the inspiration for Steve Martin's play Picasso at Le Pan Agile, which is a, I mean, this is, it's obviously a fictitious meeting between Pablo Picasso and Einstein, set in 1904, the year before, of course, the miracle mm-hmm. you were talking about. But he probably wouldn't have gotten that idea had Einstein not been rubbing elbows with all these other major oh, world figures. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, it created a bit of a backlash for him back home. He had actually, long, long ago when he was going to college in Switzerland, he had actually renounced his um, his German citizenship. Yes. Um but you know now not... well, he was brought back into the fold in 1914 he was brought yeah, yeah he was brought back in but at this point um you know the nazi movement is rising um back home and they basically found him to be a convenient target mm-hmm. um they... along with many other intellectual jews at the time yeah they branded his um his work you was know, jew science basically yeah, yeah. yeah they called it, it jewish called. physics mm-hmm. and um they were sponsoring conferences and book burnings and denouncing him um they uh, they published a, a magazine cover with him on a, with his picture on it and it the caption not yet hanged on the cover. Um, wow! And there was a price on his head. And so, interestingly enough, Einstein actually kind of renounced his pacifism and validated the war that was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and decided that he was going to stay in the united states um for fear of his life yeah so 1933 he leaves he uh makes his way to new jersey 
and he accepts uh, a position at the Institute of Advanced Studies. In Princeton, New Jersey. Good old yes. Princeton University. Same year that Hitler became... President. President, yes. yes. Or Chancellor or whatever, yes. Yeah. Which a lot of people basically said that the Pope of Physics has now left Germany and established the Vatican at Princeton. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. And he... And this was actually... I mean, this is the 1930s, and this is a really hard time. So aside yeah. from being displaced from your home country... Um, his, uh, son Edward actually, um, suffered a mental breakdown and was diagnosed with schizophrenia Oh sh- and was, um, put, well, his, his mother was caring for him, um, for quite some time, but ended up just institutionalizing him, um, oh. after she couldn't take care of him anymore. And I think she passed away. Um, and then, uh, one of Einstein's close friends committed suicide in 1933. And then I- Einstein's second wife, Elsa, um, his cousin, uh, died in 1936. So this was just a really, really, really tough time. And then to kind of cap off the end of the 1930s, um, physicists began to seriously consider um, whether the equation E equals MC squared would make the atomic bomb possible. Um, so, I mean, and Einstein had dismissed it earlier and, you know, he thought about it, but was like, meh, whatever. Um, and he kind of left it open. And then he actually gave them permission. He actually gave um, FDR permission to to develop the atomic bomb. He basically almost urged him. Yeah. Well, it, we also is... have to mention uh, Liesla uh, Meitzner in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a leading um, advocate of atomic theory, and uh, she did a lot of work in exile because she too was a Jew. Yeah. Uh, and forced to flee and leave the country in 1938. And the work that she was doing um, with her colleagues back in Germany through correspondence led to the the actual, you know, proof that the atom could be split. Uh, and Germany had this information. Um, they had the the ability to do it, but they they simply didn't have the right people in place. If they hadn't had their anti-Semitic view, views, they would yeah. have had several uh very intelligent people working on this sure and germany could have developed the atomic bomb long before the united states and you're quite right that you know in, in 39 after a lot of this uh, you know had been published and came out uh einstein immediately urged roosevelt to begin some sort yeah. of project on a developing an atomic weapon yeah he was he was basically convinced by a fellow physicist who who urged him to do it and he went along with it um until it, he sees what happens yeah. 15 years later, no, or sorry, six years later, because yeah. then he would retract his statement. Well, well, he would still believe that atomic weapons should be used as a deterrent. Sure. Because they, their existence was inevitable. That was his conclusion. Uh, but he deplored their use in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah exactly. so... Yeah, just to just to clarify on that, and I mean to look into the development of atomic bombs, a whole other episode. So we're not going to get too far. Oh into yeah, that. Otto Hahn and the whole situation. <laughs> That's a whole other uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he was actually on vacation when he heard the news that the atomic bomb was dropped on Japan, and then almost immediately he was part of the international effort to bring bring it under control, not get rid of it, but bring it under control, um, forming the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists. Um, so, and, and the interesting thing is, you know, kind of in the post-war era. Um, Einstein was still very much drawn to anti-war um, activities. His his political leanings were socialist. Um, 
He's very liberal. He's yeah. very liberal, and he um, was a passionate, committed anti-racist. And oh yes, um, he joined the NAACP in Princeton, um, where he campaigned for civil rights, and he considered racism America's worst disease. Yeah, I um, believe he called that wasn't the measles, but he called it something else. There was, or it was just the, a the measles of mankind was uh, was, was a, the war was the was World the, War One yeah. was World War One. Yeah, okay. well, that was nationalism in general. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He got America's worst disease, right? Yeah. yeah. And again, this is kind of it kind of goes hand in hand with the same concept nationalism racism kind of you know like you know thinking that your own people are better than everybody else he, he really deplores that because right. i think he really is open to the idea of people working together right um, but he also was he joined the naacp which yeah is crazy yeah absolutely he, like awesome crazy mm-hmm. awesome and um he was uh a friend and correspondent with uh, W.B. Dubois. Who, for those who don't know, was the first African-American to receive a doctorate yes. in the United States. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and when W.B. W.E.B. Dubois. It's a lot of consonants in there. Oh, yeah. Um, it's easier than that's saying, why his, I'm not for, saying his it. three first names. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Eric. When he was on, Sorry. when Dubois was on trial in 1951, Einstein was Ricky prepared Rack, yeah. to offer, like, prepared to be a character witness, and uh, it got people to back off and were like, "Oh, dude, Einstein's on your side? Uh, never mind, you're fine, you're cool." <laughs> who do you got in your corner, McCarthy? Yeah, I've got the guy who helped develop modern physics. <laughs> so, who do you think is smarter? I'm just curious. Yeah, and Einstein would absolutely, um, you know, continue on with his work and really um you know like eric was saying wormholes higher dimensions possibility of time, time travel, travel like yeah. all well, of this stuff that and the very coining of the of the concept of the universe unified field theory right that there is something even bigger that still binds and connects everything together and einstein as a spiritual man believed that this was essentially the, the force the, the, yeah well yeah for lack of a better word right yeah. like the the power of god and how that relates to the entirety of the universe yeah and i think it's important to, to mention that uh einstein even though he was a secular jew he was what we consider a pantheist not yeah. not a not a pantheist isn't there's a pantheon yeah. a pantheist which is to say that the god is a force god is a is a supernatural essence that yeah. creates the universe not a conscious necessarily or personal yeah deity he, he always found himself leaning closer to agnosticism than he did to atheism correct um, man <laughs> um and it's really interesting because he really he spent a lot of time working on trying to find logical inconsistencies in quantum theory um and would do a lot of thought experiments towards that um and he would often say god does not play dice with the universe yeah. and so he was trying to find you know, the reoccurrences and, and the logic behind everything to see if he could somehow break down. Which is why yeah. he really receded in the 1950s. Absolutely. You know, the rest of the scientific community wanted to talk about quantum theory, but yeah. he was more interested in, you know, wormholes and stuff. So. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, another reason for his detachment um, was uh, beginning in 1925, um, his obsession with discovering a unified field theory. Yeah. Um, an all-embracing theory that we unify the forces of the universe and thereby the laws of physics into one framework. And um, in his later years, he stopped opposing quantum theory and tried to incorporate it along with light and gravity into one big field theory. Um, but he didn't live too much longer. He didn't live that. too much yeah. longer after that. So um, in 1955, uh, he started experience, experiencing um, internal bleeding 
caused by uh, the rupture of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Yeah. And uh, it had been previously reinforced surgically in 1948, but um, the internal bleeding was taking hold. And um, he took a dra- he took the draft of a speech he was preparing for television, a television appearance um, commemorating the state of Israel's seventh anniversary. Um, and w- he was working on it in the hospital, but he didn't live long enough to complete yeah. it. So um, he actually refused surgery, uh, saying, I want to go when I want. It's taste- it's tasteless to prolong life artificially. I've done my share. It's time to go. And I will do so elegantly. Yeah. Uh, I think it, works, it does it is worth noting, though, that even though he died, his story does still continue. Mm-hmm. Um, as we have recently discovered we've already kind of known about his extramarital affairs too um but we actually have more insight on those now um due to letters that were unsealed by the hebrew university of jerusalem which we didn't mention but he was on the board of governors so the letters were handed over from his there were letters from his stepdaughter margaret uh who and they were unsealed she requested they be unsealed 20 years after her death she died in 1986, if I'm not mistaken. So they are essentially a group of letters that are his correspondence between him and her. And they are, in fact, basically, it's her trying to kind of do her best to cover up the affairs. He was actually very open about his extramarital affairs. If he asked, he would not lie. But to protect his wife's mm-hmm. reputation, she he did his best to, to not say anything sure. uh, about it. And a lot of it was through this cor- this correspondence with his stepdaughter that would allow that to happen, essentially. Yeah. Um, and there there have actually been articles where they released a couple of the translations of the letters. And he had a very big fondness for Margot. Is it Margot M- or Mar- Margot? It's Margot with a T. So it's, it's, it's pronounced Margot. All, it... all of Margot is spelled with a T at the end. It's oh, okay. pronounced Margot. Got it. Yeah. My apologies. I'm not going to go back and say it all over yeah, again. Yeah, so now we know. So I will say for this point forward. Yeah. Just like posthumously, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, uh, because Einstein viewed Margot very fondly, that that correspondence even existed to begin with. Sure, sure. Um, another interesting real quick point about Einstein's death, um, he died at Princeton Hospital, and when they went to um, take care of his remains and do an autopsy, uh, they just took his brain. Yeah, without anyone's <laughs> permission. No, they just took it. Um, they're like, mm, ours now. And their hope is that, you know, one of these days we'll eventually have um, ad- so much advanced technology and neuroscience that we'd be able to look at Einstein's brain and figure out why he was so damn smart. Yeah. And perhaps even replicate it. Or plug well, him into a computer and just, you know. <laughs> the, the thinking is the chemistry of Einstein's brain is almost certainly no different than anyone else it's sure. just the way the man thought yeah some people think a little differently than others do that is true yeah that so is true. go out there and unlock your own potential and intelligence don't hope for a science to do it for you in the future uh there's a lot of people look at albert einstein he may not have made the achievements that he did if he had not made a few key choices in his life yeah uh anyone in my opinion well i think we all capable. we all have deep cosmological thoughts right we really do it's do we ever give them as much weight and do we ever choose to explore them to the extent that Einstein did? But because those thoughts excited him, mm-hmm. he was able, he was willing to entertain them and nurture them and take them further. Sure. Right? Sure. We all, all our brains are all made of the same materials, guys. The same. Star stuff. Exactly. It's all made out of E equals MC squared. Which again, we said was, you know, milk, chocolate, and cookies. Yeah. That's right. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. delish. So, shall we get into some listener feedback? Yes, we shall. This week in Listener Feedback. Our first 
piece of feedback um, is another one on our Golden Gate Bridge episode. Comes from Tony. He basically he commemorates uh, that he was there for the Golden Gate Bridge's fiftieth birthday. So it's his experience of the event. Uh, he was twenty seven and he was there with some friends who had just graduated that weekend from Berkeley. Uh, he they started the day on the San Francisco side of the gate. Uh, I'm going to st- quote him now. My friends and I woke up at 6 a.m. in the morning to start walking through the fog to the bridge from my friend's house on the west side of the city. We thought that the bridge would be divided into lanes so that uh, the San Francisco walkers would cross on the right and the Marin folks would be able to cross on the left. When we got there, we were close to the front of the crowd and saw that there were no lanes marked out. Basically, the bridge was a free-for-all. Um, to to summarize, um, so when they dropped the starting rope, we wanted we started to cross. Both sides crossed en masse. Everyone who wanted to be the first to cross in a few minutes, we were in the middle of a bridge and against up against the Marin crowd. So you basically have two crowds moving toward each other, uh, just kind of like trying to wade through the mass of each other. Uh, it was like hitting a wall of people. Neither side could go forward nor back. We could see that more and more people were trying to get on the bridge. The roads on the bridge from both sides looked like they were carpeted with people like ants as far as they could, as far as the eye could see. We were stuck on the bridge for most of the morning before we could get off and we never got to the Marin side. We could tell that the bridge was stressed, but we could not see that the bridge was flattening out. Um, by the midday morning, uh, came around, uh, it turned out to be a beautifully sunny day. The helicopters were buzzing overhead and we just waved at them not realizing that we could be in any danger. Um, we settled in for the wait and make friends, made friends with the folks stuck in the bridge with us. Uh, NorCal folks always seem ready to make the best of any situation. Um, somebody brought a radio. I'm cutting ahead. Somebody brought a radio and we're listening to KFRC when we finally realized that we were going to be stuck for a while. And the only thing that I remember being an issue was the lack of bathrooms on the bridge, which is a major design oversight from my way of thinking. Uh, all in all, it was a great experience and glad to be a part of the bridge history. All the best from the rain-soaked valley of Sacramento, Tony. Great. Very all cool. Right. Thank you, sir. It's Thank you for sharing there. that experience. I love hearing that. Yeah. Um, and then we also have feedback from Sarah, a subject I'm in love. She says, hello, I just recently found podcasts and I have been binge listening everything I can. I came across your podcast and instantly feel feel in love with it. When I was in my teens, my friends and I would sit around our basements or coffee shops doing the same thing. You make your listeners feel like they are just another person sitting with you. I may this I may I know this may sound weird, but I find myself talking back sometimes. It's not that weird. People tell us that all the time. I've had friends stop listening to Nerds on Film because they were yelling at us too much. Um, My girlfriend isn't included. She hasn't stopped listening, but she finds herself wanting to yell at us quite a bit. Yeah. Um... I have just started listening, so I'm quite a bit behind. I just listened to The Demise of Floppy the Rabbit. I wanted to share with you a story my vet gave me about guinea pigs. Sailors, in order to prevent getting scurvy on their trips back to England, would bring the guinea pigs on their ships. They would have the guinea pigs eat fruits and veggies uh, before they went bad, and then in turn, the sailors would eat the guinea pigs. If any survived, they would then sell them in the local English markets for a guinea. Hence the name guinea pig. Ah. She said, thanks again. Love your show. I love that. Yeah. 
So if you have any interesting tidbits about uh, rodents, pocket pets, or anything of the like, you can do so by going to nerdonomy.com, clicking that Talk to Us button, and shooting us an email. You can also uh, send us a letter. You can uh, leave us a voicemail. All that information is available on the website. You can also hit us up on social media. If you go to Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, just search for Nerdonomy. You will find us, I promise you. As tempting as it may be, and despite the fact that we do have a P.O. box, please do not send us any live or otherwise deceased guinea pigs. Uh, we don't 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 include food for them. Don't think it's fine. Just just just, just yeah. Don't. However, speaking of food, if you do choose to send us an edible item, as we have gotten in the past, great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Just let us know. Uh, we don't we don't check the P.O. box every week. So knowing that there is uh, a perishable item uh, would be very, very beneficial to us and to you um, so that we can go and retrieve it and enjoy it. And just to clarify, I know there was a slight pause there. That is edible item. Yes. Not edible. Not an edible. Just an making sure. Edible item. <laughs> it is not legal in California yet. Please do not send... For our, uh, for our Washington and Colorado listeners. Yeah, please do not send illegal drugs via the Postal Service. Um, that's a bad idea. Um Anyway, you can also uh, give us a review on iTunes, tell your friends all about us. Basically, spread the word of nerd. Indeed. And we want to thank you for that. As we've said last episode, as we approach our 150th episode, we've gone from zero to 5,000, guys. And so thank you very much for that. Clearly, you are doing your part in spreading the word of nerd. Please keep telling your friends. Keep spreading that word of nerd. And hopefully, we'll get to six, maybe even 10,000 listeners one day. Cool. With that, it is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. Goodbye. Wait. So how many Einsteins does it take to screw in a light bulb? <sighs> all right. Let's do this all over again.